Hear the word of God from Colossians 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now, but now he has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now you take the word of God and make application to our lives by the power that you bring, Holy Spirit. Amen. So the book of Colossians is written by the Apostle Paul, who is in a Roman prison, hearing of the faith and the love of this church that has been started by his lieutenant, a man named Epaphras, a church Paul had never met, a city he'd never been to. So he's hearing about their faith and their love that is a tender faith and love that is held up in their minds by the hope of heaven. And so he's also hearing about some bewildering theological mystical, cultural beliefs that are invading the city and buttressing, beating the church. And as this amalgam of teachings, which includes some of the following, it's called the Colossian heresy, which includes elements of Gnosticism that says the earth is nothing but a giant mistake and that God is undefinable. Therefore, life has no rhythm, no meaning, no end result. There was a group that came along and said, really, it's okay to worship Jesus, but what you really need to do is to have angel guides and have an angel worship mentality, angel idolatry. And so they had pendants they wore around their neck that had their angel's name upon it. And then some came in and said, well, it's okay to talk about Christ, but the way you really are made right with God is through a list of legalistic, Judaistic do's and don'ts. And so all of this was part of the fabric of the city, and it was infiltrating the church. And so Paul writes this wonderful book called Colossians to combat the, the false teaching and to hold up the supremacy of Christ, because all of these teachings denigrate Christ, all of these teachings rob the cross of his glory and destroy the forgiveness of sin. And, and so he's, 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 understand this, you gotta understand the historical context. Here is a man who at one time cursed the name of Jesus. Here is a man who would pursue believers and drag them out of their homes and imprison them because of their faith. Here is a man, we believe, who gave hearty approval to the stoning of a man named Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And this man now, after he's encountered the reality of Christ and has committed his way to the Lord and has been a man who's preached the gospel, is in prison because of his faith in Jesus, the name he used to curse. And so he, he sits back and he says, how do we attack error? How do we attack runaway sensuality? How do we attack the worship of angels that supplants the supremacy of Christ? How do we attack a bizarre belief that the earth is a cacophonic nothingness with no meaning and no viable, viability? How do we, he says, we talk about the glory of Jesus and so he starts in verse 15. Just, let me just read it again. He says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on the earth. Take that, Gnostics. 
Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent for it pleased the Father for all of his fullness to abide or dwell in Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, remember this, Church of Colossae, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but now he has reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He just talks about the supremacy and the greatness of Christ. But now God has captivated you by the gospel of grace. God entered human history in the fullness of time and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for your sins by his blood on the cross. He has purchased your pardon and your peace. What you could never do for yourself, he did for you as your substitute. But now you're in Christ. But now we should be men and women who are lost in reverence and awe and worship. There's a hymn by a man named John Newton. We sang one of his hymns this morning in this room. Amazing grace. Another hymn is, let us love and sing and worship. Let us love and sing and worship or wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with his blood. He has brought us unto God. And, and, and Newton says, let, let us love and sing and wonder and worship and be, because he has hushed the law's loud thunder. You see, the, the law convicts us of sin, and the law tells us that all of sin comes short of the glory of God. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law, legalist, Romans 3.20. Rather, through the law, we become aware of our sin, but because Christ is our sin bearer, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame where the Ten Commandments were given. He has fulfilled the law for us. And so we should be moved by the but now to reverence and adoration and, and to, to worship. And so my question to my heart and to yours is the, the reverential awe and worship of Christ changed you this week, impacted the way you respond to people this week. I was reading Matthew this week, Matthew chapter 9. I was just struck by this statement. This is the well-known passage. Verse 2, and, and behold, some people brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Verse 2, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why 
do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, uh, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? The answer is, both are easy to say, but hard to pull off. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. Verse 8, and when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. You know, this, the scribes said, rightfully so, this man is blaspheming because no one can forgive sin but God, not realizing that they had God standing in their midst. So Jesus heals, forgives, and, and he, I was struck by what the crowd did. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They feared. They were moved to awe. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. And I thought, here, here are people moved by the reality of Christ. And, and they are in awe. And they glorify God because he's given authority to this man. Not realizing this is eternal God in their midst. And, and, and how much more would they have been moved with awe and wonder and worship and glorified God if they realized he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. For by this man forgiving sins and healing this paralyzed man, for by him all things were created in heaven and on the earth, visible and invisible, were the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him and through him and in him all things hold together. How much more? And so I said to my soul, so how, how much more? Should I be moved with reverence and awe and worship as I contemplate the greatness of Christ? So, so Paul says, how do you combat the buffeting heresies of the day? You glory in Christ. First Peter talks about the same issue. First Peter chapter 2, Peter's going through the, the glory of, of our salvation, the wonder of Christ being the cornerstone. And then he gets to the application part of the, of the passage. And, and he says, verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So, For, for this is the will of God, that by doing good... You should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Listen. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Says, yeah, yes, we're free. Our sins are forgiven. But we don't live callously or carelessly. But, but we live... As God called out chosen people who are servants of God. And then he says this. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There's a lot in that little verse. He uses the same word, honor all people, 
as he uses the same word for honor, the emperor. And, and, and we read this as Americans, not understanding the first century world, and we go, big deal. It's a big deal. Part of the American exceptionalism is that all men are created equal and are, they are endowed with their creator with certain inalienable rights and that, that, that all... But in this worldly, this context, to use the same word for street sweepers, honor them as to honor the emperor was mind-boggling. And so Peter says, all people have dignity. And then he says, especially you love the brethren, love the people of God. And then he says this, fear God. And to me, that's the linchpin. Walk in awe and adoration of the glory and the goodness of God. There's no elitism. There's no classism. There's no divine right of kings. We're sinners saved by grace. And so we honor all men. We honor the emperor. We love the brethren. And we fear God. That's the context. So, so again, I, I go back. My thesis is, but now causes us to be moved by reverence and awe and wonder and, and adoration and worship. It brings focus. It brings attention because we see that we're forgiven by the fleshly death of Jesus on the cross. A real body, a real physical body. Reconciled, he says, in his body of flesh. It focuses your attention. So, I, I just, sir, I just went to Washington in Canada to be with our son and daughter and grandson. Had a wonderful time. Got back Friday night. And a few weeks ago, they called us and they said, uh, we need a babysitter. We're going skiing up in British Columbia. You think mom can come? I said, only if she has an accompaniment, somebody to accompany her. She has a, she, she has a, a, a junior babysitter, and that'd be me. So we went. And we started talking about the dates, and I got it on my calendar, and this is about four weeks ago, five weeks ago. And Zach says, well, Dad, we're going to be, we're going to be traveling six hours uh, on the 31st of December. And I said, stop. I said, do you know what's happening on the 31st of December? I said, that's the NCAA playoff. Two, I don't know who's playing when, but he said, oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so we're, we, so, so. Schedule came out, and we left at 6 o'clock in the morning. Thought it was going to be a six-hour drive. It snowed the whole way, snowy roads. Didn't slow those people down. Uh, I said, Zach, 5 o'clock Pacific Standard Time is when Clemson, Ohio State plays. I know. I know. We're, we're going to be in our hotel, sitting down, ready to go. I said, okay. I'm, I'm trusting you here. And so we get to Canada. And a little bit later, because of the snow, Hurry into our rooms, call ahead, turn on the TV. We're bringing the stuff upstairs. It's right at 5 o'clock, 8 o'clock our time. 27 channels, no football game. <laughs> I mean, ice hockey everywhere. Curling, curling. I mean, come on. And it's just, I just thought, you've you got to be kidding me. So we're just having really great anger in a godly way. And so Zach calls downstairs to the restaurant and says, you know, they have all these TVs. And he said, is there a football game on? And there's 20 TVs down here. I don't, I don't. So I said, Zach, let's go see. We run downstairs and we walk in and there's a nice young lady. I said, do you have ESPN? And she said, what is that? <laughs> and I go, oh, great. 
And I said, is your manager here? He comes out and he says, you know, we, there are 20 TVs. They're watching ice hockey. And I go, can one of these TVs go to, no, we, we can't do that. I said, thank you. Go outside. <laughs> and uh, so Zach starts calling all the sports bars in town about 20 minutes away. Finally finds one. He says, yeah, we can watch one game. What, what does the game look like? He says, well, it's a football game. And she says, well, what are they wearing? She says, one team has orange, the other team has silver. And she says, I think it's, one has tiger paws. She says, that's it. Can we get there? We'll get there. We got there one minute before the end of the first half. And we saw the second half. But, but there were like 12 TVs and one little TV over here with the game on. And, of course, no sound. Had the hockey game blaring and... And all these people running around New Year's Eve, and you know everybody knew each other in this small little town, and they were having a good time cheering for the hockey team. I don't even know who was playing; don't care. And and but but we were we were man we were watching, high fiving, fist pumping as we ate our wings and nachos and and and, and the whole nine yards. And I, I thought, you know, and later I said, you're surrounded by all this commotion and all these things, but if your mind is fixated on an object. You can tune things out. That's what Paul is trying to say here. He says, if, if, you're going to, if you're going to be surrounded by a culture filled with all these amalgam of teachings, and if you're going to be buffeted about, you've got to be centered on a belief system that is greater and more grand and more glorious than all of these things, and that is Jesus and him crucified. So, so how, how do you address the bewildering, befuddling, mismatch of beliefs? You've got to be, people say, but now, and be moved by the reverence and awe and worship as you contemplate Christ. And so Paul says in this passage that you were at one time alienated, Hostile in your mind, and you were doing evil deeds. But now, you've been reconciled to the living God by the fleshly body of Jesus given for you on the cross. See, you were alienated, separated from him, hostile in your mind. This hostility is, is really part of it. I think it's just being apathetic or indifferent when you're surrounded by a hundred different isms and a hundred different paths and a hundred different voices saying everything from the earth is a mistake to you've got to do this to you've got to worship angels, you've got to have mystical experiences. You, you become indifferent and immune to the truth. And so, and so you, you become hostile in your mind as you do evil deeds. He says, but now, behold the glory, but now you have been reconciled by his physical body through death, in order to present you, present tense, but now, present tense, past tense, ongoing, to present you as people who are blameless and pure and holy before him. And then I, I back up and I say, do I understand daily the significance and the glory of the forgiveness of sins, not by a slow work of impartation as I work and strain and labor, but the imputation of Christ's goodness freely given to me once and for all by faith. And does that arrest my attention and move me to reverence and awe and worship and sacrifice and loving and caring and forgiveness? One of my New Year's goals is to continuously think through and pray through the Psalms 
God's prayer book. Do a psalm. Today's the eighth. Do Psalm 8. And then if you can, do 38 and 68. And just that way you can pray through the psalms really once a month, potentially. And as I, I, I just, I read the psalms and I'm going, wow. And I read this book, this commentary by a guy named Alex Moiter. And he says that the psalms are written by people who knew far less about the majesty and the holiness of God than we do, and yet they loved him more than we do, close quote. And I thought, you know, that's true. I mean, I think of Psalm 1, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on that law he meditates day and night. And you know, I've, I've, I've just, his delight is in the law of the Lord. He's talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about. Delighting in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They're wonderful. But the, 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 the revelation of God in Scripture is, is like this, complete in Christ. And then, so the first five books are down here. The revelation of God in the first five books compared to Romans or First and Second Peter or Colossians or Christ is the complete revelation. And I thought, you know, do I delight in the revelation of God in the Scripture? Or, or I thought of Psalm 84, one of my favorite psalms, which says that for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is the sun and his shield. He bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Happy is the one who trusts in you. And this was written by David, and I'm going, but David saw dimly the coming Messiah King. David didn't have the apostolic message. David didn't have the Gospels. How much more should I be moved to saying, but now, with reverence and awe and adoration and worship, I was alienated I was hostile in my mind, doing evil deeds, but now I've been reconciled. Martin Luther, Martin Luther said this, the reformer who died in 1546. He says a couple of things. He says, whatever does not teach or preach Christ crucified is not apostolic, which means from the Bible, the apostles. Even though it's... Somebody may say it's written by Peter or Paul. Again, whatever preaches Christ and him crucified is from God. Whether it's written by Judas or Pilate or Herod, he's making the joke. It says, we can never recognize the Father's favor and grace were it not for the Lord Christ, who is a mirror of the Father's heart. And then there's this incredible letter written by a woman named Barbara Leiskirchen. And she was writing to Luther, she says, I, I, I question my salvation. I don't know if I'm really in the Lord. And that's what Luther says. The highest of all God's commands is this, that we hold before our eyes the image of his dear son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Every day, he should be the excellent mirror wherein we behold how much God loves us and how well in his infinite goodness 
He cared for us in that he gave his dear son for us. Contemplate Christ given for us. Then, God willing, you will feel better. Contemplate Christ. Glory in Christ who has reconciled you to the living God by his fleshly body. And so that, that's why it moves us to love and adoration and worship. And then the manifestation, just one manifestation because of the time. One manifestation. Verse 24. We'll deal with this more in a couple of weeks. But he says, now I rejoice as I contemplate Christ, as I live in the but now I'm reconciled. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am, will, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This is an incredible verse. He says, he says wait, wait a minute, what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for his church? Here's the answer, I believe from the text. That, that from generation to generation, we're called to live out the reality of Christ and to represent him through generation before us and the generations that are to come. And as we sacrificially live and care and steward our gifts, God gets the honor. And the church is built. And people are brought to growth in Christ. You are called to be significant in the lives of people. Every person here who names the name of Christ, you are called to, by your sacrifice and your love and your diligence and your joy, to, to fill up in your generation what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ from generation to generation to generation. I was reading this week about, about a man named Hans Brett. Hans Brett uh, died in 1577. Hans Brett was a young man in Antwerp. His family was from England. His, his dad had died. His brother's gone back to England. He was living in Antwerp, Belgium, with his mother. They, they become believers. They become part of a group called the Anabaptist. And Hans Brett is feverishly studying the Bible. He's in his early 20s. He's an apprentice baker. And he shares the gospel with other young men. They come to faith. They start studying the Bible together. The authorities tell him, you must stop. He says, I'm, I'm not going to stop. And so they warned him. He, they finally broke into the bakery one day. They arrested him, took him to prison. He was in prison for eight months where they tried to get him to recant. Time after time, he would not stop preaching the gospel. He wrote a couple of letters from prison. One was to his mother that will make your heart just sing for joy and then make you weep. His mother, a widow. And so after eight months, that he was sentenced to death for preaching the gospel. And they knew that Hans Brett, as he went to his, his death, would preach Christ and tell people they're saved by faith alone. So they, they, they took a tongue screw, took some pliers, pulled his tongue out, and took a tongue screw and screwed it in through his tongue so he couldn't speak. And so he went to the execution. He was burned at the stake. His pastor stepped forward and bore witness to Christ, really putting his own life in danger. And after all was said and done, and the smoldering ruins remained, the only thing there was some ashes, and the tongue screw. And his pastor picked up the tongue screw and took it home. The pastor ended up marrying his, this man's uh, mother. 
And so that tongue screw from generation to generation has been passed down in that family as a witness to the glory and wonder of a man who was captivated by the grace of Jesus. Hans Brett. And I thought, what a heritage we have received from many women who lived with diligence. And it's our call to live for the reality of Christ with faithfulness before this generation. I read a book on Pearl Harbor recently. So in December 1941, the USS West Virginia was hit by torpedoes. The torpedoes dropped in the plane. They believed that, that torpedoes could never get into Pearl Harbor because it was a shallow harbor. And, but yet the Japanese developed a system whereby it just skimmed across the top of the, the water and, and it, it torpedoed the USS West Virginia and it turned capsized and 106 men died, but, but 66 of the men who died were trapped in the hull of the ship. And so as they fiercely tried to right the ship and that they could hear these men for, they say, up to two weeks beating out noises on the hull of the ship. And the men down there finally just had to put plugs in their ears because they couldn't stand it. It was driving them crazy because they couldn't get the ship right. And they finally did. 66 men were there in the ship. Some had crossed off the dates on the calendar. One report says it got as far as Christmas Eve. That's from the 7th to the 24th. And I thought when I read that, I thought, do, do, do I see people around me without Christ? As, as, as people like these men trapped in the USS West Virginia who have no hope. And God forbid that I preach not the gospel of Jesus. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through the cross work of Jesus. God forgive me for not weeping more for people without Christ. So I got my mail yesterday from the last week, and I, I like this magazine. It's World Magazine. This is a good magazine. It's a Christian perspective on the news, and I think it's pretty balanced. And, uh, but they always have a section on the last edition of people who've died this year. And I, I just flipped through and circled some names of people that I know Muhammad Ali, of course, died this year. Arnold Palmer, the golfer, golfing great, died. Cliff Barrows, Billy Graham's right-hand man, died at the age of 93. Um, Jerry Bridges, the well-known writer for NAV Press and who popularized John Owen for our generation, died. Pat Conroy, the Citadel graduate and great writer, died at the age of 70. John Glenn, of course, died, age 95. Gordy Hull died this year. Gordy Hull, excuse me, died this year. Uh, great ice hockey player. Played ice hockey in the National Hockey League from the age of 52. Pretty amazing guy. John McLaughlin. I used to love to watch the McLaughlin group. John McLaughlin, former Jesuit. First-rate thinker, died 89 years of age. Alan Rickman, the actor, died this year. I enjoyed him. He was age 69. Antonin Scalia, the great Supreme Court Justice, died, age 79. Gary Smalley died, age 75. C. Peter Wagner, books I had to read his in seminary, died at age 86. He taught at Fuller Seminary. Gene Wilder, the comic that was so funny, died, age 83. But I, I just, I will flip through these people, and Pat Summit died, head coach of 
University of Tennessee women's basketball Hall of Fame coach. Died at age 64. But one day there will be a year in this magazine, and we probably won't have our names here, but it will be our death year. 2017 for some of us. And I thought, Lord, forgive me for not living every day understanding the brevity of life. Forgive me. Forgive me for not thinking about Colossians 1.24 every day of my life. What can I do to fill up the reality of Christ for those around me and the coming generations? Forgive me. I was doing some research this week and somebody referred to a creative writer who gave an address and I googled it and he gave an address. It was a very profane address. I had to turn it off but he's, this guy's very creative, very gifted. It's entitled scared and then the next word is a derogatory word, expletive. And he just talked, says, you know, said, as, as, he said, as I look at life, I'm just scared beyond words. And he, he just kind of went through his experience. He said, you know, my dad died when I was, gave them his age. And he said, you know, it forever changed my life. And it scared me. He said, I got married. I was happily married. And one day, he said, I was just totally in the fog. My wife left me. And it devastated me. And I was scared of relationships. And I vowed I will never, ever, ever get married again. It's not worth it. And he said, five months later, I met someone who became my wife. But as I look at marriage, I'm scared. He said, then something happened that has blown my mind. We had a daughter. He said, and I love my daughter. But when I look at her, I am scared beyond words for her future and what I could do to mess her up. He said, as I look at, the, at death, I'm, I'm just scared beyond words. And he went on, and I, I turned it off because it was pretty profane. But... I've got to tell you, I, I look at the future at times. There are people, I, I point to people in this room who are going through very hard times. Life is, in the fallen world, is scary. It's hard. Death is hard. Getting old is hard. Walking with children that don't want to walk with you is hard. Caring for Aging parents is hard and it's scary. But at the end of the day, church, unlike this dear man who's very creative, very bright, I turn the lights out and I say, Abba, Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Dear Father, you've got it. And I'm reconciled to the Trinitarian glory of God by the work of the cross. And if I should die before I wake, I have the hope of heaven. So, so I'm scared, but I'm not scared to the point of despair. I trust. And so this whole past, but now you've been reconciled, which should cause us to have reverence and awe and worship because of the greatness of Christ.
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the the privilege of reading a document written from a Roman prison in 60 AD by a man who you preserved from writing anything that was an error. And you've given us the Bible, and you've given us the hope of Christ. You've given us a purpose for living. And Lord, as we're surrounded by a mishmash of numerous isms and thought systems, I pray that the supremacy and the glory of Christ would motivate and inspire and carry us along. I, I pray that we would be men and women who, when we contemplate the wonder of Christ, would be filled with reverence and awe and worship, and we will glorify God. I pray that we would be men and women who look to you and trust you. Um, and, and Lord, as this year comes, this year will be filled with joys and sorrows. It will be filled with laughter and at times tears. And we thank you that we know that at the end of the day and at the end of our days, there is a place for us in heaven because of Jesus. And we want that for our contemporaries. We want that for the people of the world who, where, where the Campbells minister. We want that for them. We want, we want people to hear and know about Jesus in unreached cities and unreached people groups in the 1040 window and in our own neighborhoods. We want that. So forgive us for... I'm not hearing the cries of men and women who have no hope. And I thank you that you give us hope. That, that at the end of the day, we are not scared beyond description, but we can trust you in the midst of our questions and heartaches because Jesus is Lord. So bless us, O Lord. And bless, bless us to the glory of your name in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.